0: from the book of Revelation 13 verses 11 through 14. The second beast. Then I saw another beast that rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound had been healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from the heaven to earth in the sight of all. And by the signs that it is allowed to perform on behalf of the beast, it deceives the inhabitants of earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could even speak And cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed also it causes all both small and great both rich and poor both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name this calls for wisdom Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666, the lamb and the 144,000. Then I looked, and there was the lamb, standing on Mount Zion. And with him were 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their playing on their harps and they sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. May the living word of God speak to us through these ancient words
1: of scripture. I'm going to read to you an excerpt from the back cover of a book that I looked at recently. Panic surges through a Heathrow-bound Boeing 747 as some passengers and crews vanish along with millions worldwide. Captain Rayford Steele fights to quell hysteria while facing personal tragedy. His wife and son are among the missing. Rumors fly and fanatics warn about the end of the world. Could they be right? Meanwhile, crack journalist Cameron Buck Williams on the trail of a global financial conspiracy finds a more ominous story unfolding as storm clouds of good and evil gather. You read a little bit further down and it says, Left Behind, so that's the series, Left Behind launched the best-selling series that rocked the publishing world and made millions. Seriously consider the future. It is just the beginning or the beginning of the end. This particular edition then notes with special features relating to the current events and end times prophecies. (laughs) Sounds innocent enough, right? Like almost like a sci-fi thriller that would be fun to read, except that it's actually a rewriting of the book of Revelation, the whole series. And um, remember, as I read another excerpt from the final book, the 12th book, um, remember that this was a bestseller. Millions of people read this. Rayford is the main character and the pilot from that back cover excerpt. Rayford tried to stay calm with Haim. When you see my throne, join those on my right, your left. The words of Jesus were more than impressed upon Rayford's heart. He had actually heard them. He moved to his left without question as waves of people moved both directions and suddenly the view before Rayford became clear. Directly below and centered under the vast heavenly hosts, saints, and angels, a great platform bore a throne on which Jesus sat. Behind him stood the three angels of mercy. On either side of him stood the archangels, Michael and Gabriel. Those names sound familiar, right? Rayford knew instinctively that every living person on earth was gathered in that valley. And Haim explained half a billion or more were raptured seven years ago. Half the remaining population was killed during the seal and trumpet judgments during the next three and a half years. Many more were lost during the vile judgments. And millions of believers were martyred. What what you are looking at is probably only one-fourth of those who were left after the rapture. And most of these will die today. Indeed, Rayford realized those assembling on Jesus' right were scant, compared to those on his left. It took most of the morning for the masses to find their places and settle. To Rayford, it appeared that to those, those two Jesus's left were puzzled at best, frightened at worst. Gabriel stepped to the front of the platform and stretched out his arms for silence. Worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he shouted. And as one, the millions on both sides of the throne fell to their knees. In a cacophony of languages and dialects, they cried out, Jesus Christ is Lord. Those on the left of Jesus, began rising to their feet. While all around Rayford, everyone remained kneeling. Clearly two different groups here, huh, Haim? Actually, three, the old man said. Those are the goats over there, the followers of Antichrist, who somehow survived to this point. You are among the sheep on this side, but I represent the third group. I am part of Jesus's brethren, the chosen people of God, whom the sheep befriended. We are the Jews who will go into the millennium as believers because of people like you. Jesus stood and walked to the edge of the platform. With anger and yet sadness, he said, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. The millions began shouting and pleading, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. You will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Rayford watched, horrified, despite knowing this was coming as the goats to Jesus' left beat their breasts and fell, wailing to the desert floor, gnashing their teeth and pulling their hair. Jesus merely raised one hand a few inches, and a yawning chasm opened in the earth, stretching far and wide enough to swallow all of them. They tumbled in, howling and screeching, but their wailing was soon quashed and all was silent when the earth closed itself again. Everyone on the platform moved back into place, and from the throne Jesus said, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass, and as I have purposed, so it shall stand. It's no longer an innocent sci-fi thriller, isn't it? I have to admit, when I got to that last part about Jesus opening the earth and casting millions of unsaved into the chasm for the ground to swallow, I was horrified. I'd heard about this series, of course. It was very popular in the early 90s when I mostly ignored it. (laughs) But these books are bestsellers. And there was even this movie series made about it, with the most recent one coming out just last year. It's terrifying, right? takes this literal interpretation of the book of Revelation and scares the reader and watcher into thinking that we better get our lives right with Jesus, or else Jesus will be casting us into the chasm on the day of the apocalypse, the judgment day, the day sometime in the future when Jesus will return and gather all the righteous to himself and cast the rest to the darkest depths of hell. This is what happens when we believe in the traditional interpretation of this book of Revelation. Note that it's not Revelations, but Revelation, that was a question on my Bible content exam. It's placed at the very end of the Bible, seemingly to indicate that this is a prediction of the future, the word of God about the final day when Jesus returns. And that is certainly the most well-known understanding of the book, that it predicts the future end of the world. The way that God will send Jesus back to judge and separate the sheep from the goats, the chosen to go to heaven and the rest to go to hell for eternity. In fact, the name of this book, Revelation, comes from the very first word of the book in chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. That's the first verse of the book. Now the Greek word for that word, Revelation, is actually apocalypsis in which you will hear our English words, apocalypse and apocalyptic. We understand these words to mean the end of the world, and more specifically, we associate them with the day that God will end the world. And so from the book of Revelation, we get the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We get the so-called number or mark of the devil, 666. We get the number 144,000 chosen, which were in our scripture readings for today. We also get an image of the new Jerusalem, where there will be no more death, no more tears, and where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and pain will be no more. Some of the images of Revelation are entirely comforting, while others are simply terrifying. I think it's easy to see why this book has taken on this kind of prediction of the future. It's filled with this tangible imagery that seems totally plausible for the end of the world. Beasts that rise out of the sea, horned creatures that make declarations, angels with trumpets and announcements, the Antichrist, earthquakes, and ultimately judgment, judgment between believers and non-believers. There's an almost otherworldly nature to these images, ones that could easily be attributed to an angry God who is ready to destroy the world and start again. Well, with all of this in mind, we certainly need to understand the context of this writing. So let's put Revelation back in its place, which from the very start is simply not a prediction of future events. In fact, the events of Revelation, the ones that are described here, they've already happened. Revelation belongs to a genre that's known as prophecy, and it's the work of the prophet named John, which we discover at the beginning of the book, written while John was on the island of Patmos. It's probably not the John, like John the Baptist, or even the John of the Gospels, or even of the epistles. John was a very common name, and this book, along with those other ones, likely came from a Johannine John community. But prophecy throughout the Bible isn't simply a prediction of the future. It's more about God delivering a message to the world through a prophet. And prophets don't speak their own words, they speak the word of God to the people. It's less foretelling of the future and more like forthtelling of God's vision for the world and how the world, as it is or was, stands counter to the world that God envisioned and intended. And so this actually means, it actually is what the Greek word that sounds like apocalyptic means, unveiling, revealing, hence revelation. This means that revelation as a prophecy is seeking to tell the contemporaries of the author John that the world isn't right. God's vision for the world isn't the reality of the world, and it seeks to encourage them to adjust it and to adjust their lives. It's not about or else. Do this or else the wrath of God will come hurling down upon you. It's more like, here's what's wrong. Fix it. This book likely dates to the end of the first century CE, so somewhere around the year 80 or 90 or so. Historically, this would have been during the reign of the Emperor Domitian when Nero was in power in the area of the recipients of the letter, which was seven churches located in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Makes them part of the Roman Empire, and this is the key to unlocking this book. There are two theories about what this time frame was like for early Christians, and they kind of go hand in hand. One is that there was persecution of Christians under the rule of Nero. Some suggest that it wasn't really widespread, but happened in more subtle ways, like economically or socially, rather than gathering them up and feeding them to the lions. The other theory about the writing is that it's a warning that it's a warning to those Christians living in a world where the lure of the empire would be very enticing. That the economic and social opportunities that the empire offered, which run counter to the teachings of Christianity, that it could lure them away. In other words, the purpose of this book is not about predicting the end of the world. It is a coded message it's a coded message that takes the events of the day and the rulers of the day and disguises them so that the writer and the recipients are kept anonymous, innocent almost. Ironically, this unveiling and revelatory writing from God is veiled for protection. And so it's not about predicting the end of the world. It is about the lore of trying to serve two gods, two emperors, two Lords. And that simply is impossible. The Christians of the day, being held back because of their beliefs, persecuted in these subtle ways, are therefore being encouraged by the letter to stay strong in their faith, to stick to their beliefs, to resist the draw of the dark side of the empire. And if they're able to do that, the new Jerusalem, the vision that God has for the world, can become their reality and so the images specifically the ones that we read today about 666 these are those coded images that the christians of the day would have understood and 666 might be the mark of the beast but that beast isn't some personified evil in the form of satan or a devil it says right there in the verse that we read the beast is a person you see there was a practice known as gematria this is the practice of assigning numbers to letters and the numbers 666 can correspond to the name Nero, the emperor who the recipients of the letter were at risk of pledging their allegiance to. There are some other theories of who it could be. In fact, I had a professor in seminary who showed us the Gematria technique to make 666 be Barney, the purple dinosaur. But there has been so much made of that number of 666 that even I pause. Knowing all of this, I pause when I see something like a telephone number or a total at the checkout counter that contains 666 because these traditions, they run deep and they are hard to break. And so putting the verse with 666 back in its place, Revelation 13, 18, means putting all of Revelation back in its place not as an apocalyptic end-of-the-world book that predicts the future judgment of God upon all of humankind, but as a reminder that the vision of God for the world is not our reality, and that as we seek to make it so, to resist the draw toward the antichrists, the evil beings of this world. You see, Revelation, their world, is our world. It's where we live our lives day in and day out. It is us. It is where we sit, painfully aware of the brokenness of this world, acutely tuned into the lures of temptation, of wealth and glory and power and beauty, all the idols of this world that dupe us into thinking that having them means that we have worth, that we are worthy of love, that we are worthy of other people's love and respect. And yet the message of Revelation is simply the opposite of that. It encourages us. It encourages us to resist the draw of serving any God, any master, anything other than God. That we can't have a heart divided. We cannot serve two masters or two gods. So resist the lure of the beast with the mark of 666 upon its head, for it is the mark of the things of this world." Instead, Revelation implores us to choose God, choose the vision that God has for this world, the new Jerusalem, where there will be no more crying in pain, where good does indeed triumph over evil, where justice reigns, and where the future that we can see is the one that God envisioned for us. Not because we're scared of being left behind, because we're scared that Jesus will raise his hand and open a great chasm below us and we'll fall forever into the eternal depths, but because God offers us just the opposite, life, light, hope, peace, grace, love. This is what revelation reveals. And if we want to leave anything behind, Let it be the evils that divide and breed hatred, that breed injustice. If those can be left behind and we can embrace God's word as our way, what a world will be revealed.